Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We live in a strange time right now as believers. Unprecedented things are happening all around us, in our families, with our loved ones. Lord, we're grateful that you have called us to place our faith in your Son, that you have saved us, that you have opened our eyes to different things through your Holy Spirit, especially to what your Word says and how we can accurately understand it and apply it to our lives. I thank you that your Word is always timeless, always true, always relevant. It doesn't matter what time or culture we're living in. It is always the truth. It is always what we can base our lives upon through faith in Jesus Christ. So Lord, I pray that you would bless our time uh, that we have together this morning, uh, that you would, uh, your spirit would go forth and work in our hearts, that your seeds of truth may be buried deep within us and bear real fruit in our lives. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Everyone has heard uh, the story of the assassination of President Abraham Lincoln at Ford's Theater by John Wilkes Booth. But I wonder how many of us know about the first time there was an assassination attempt on Lincoln's life. The following true story was published in Smithsonian Magazine. When Abraham Lincoln found out he had won the presidency on November 6, 1860, his clerk was alarmed at the growing rate of death threats uh, by form of letter and telegraph that were coming across his desk. Lincoln's clerk, however, noticed that his boss was so kind-hearted that he just couldn't believe that there was so much political hatred he would need to worry about conspired murder. It's a whole other world back then, wasn't it? Back then, the inauguration ceremony didn't take place until March 4th of the new year, and as railroads were the fastest and most reliable mode of transportation from Lincoln's hometown of Springfield, Illinois to Washington, D.C., his train would have to be going across the rest of the Midwest and Mid-Atlantic and some in the Northeast to get there. The glaring problem was that five southern states had already seceded from the Union, and Maryland, a state that much of the railroad that Lincoln would have would had to travel through, was boiling over with anti-Northern sentiment, sentiment. Lincoln's train would have to go through Baltimore, an enslaved people holding city, and the fourth most populated city in the country at the time before reaching D.C. Lincoln had already sent out his itinerary to the press in which he insisted would be open and public in Baltimore and of which everyone knew his every move. Does that sound like a good setup? <laughs> Through a covert operation, complete with spies and undercover detectives, it was discovered that there was a secret cabal of men whose goal it was to assassinate Lincoln before he reached the inauguration. The plan included even a ritualistic ceremony surrounded by candlelight and a coded way of communication. 
The way, the, the plan was for the attempt to take place at a stop on Lincoln's tour through Baltimore, where only a small group of policemen would be stationed, a diversion would be created to lure those policemen off, the assassin would shoot the president-elect, and then the shooter would be whisked away for escape. Once these undercover detectives found out about this plan, they were able to convince a reluctant, there I got through that word, Lincoln to stay on the train and travel through Baltimore in the middle of the night and earlier than planned. There was still a great level of danger, however, and the head detective contrived a series of bluffs, decoys, deceptions, and disguises to get a ridiculously tall and easily recognizable Lincoln from Harrisburg to Philadelphia and through Baltimore undetected. At 6 a.m. the following morning, Lincoln and the detective hired to protect him exited the train safely in Washington. That detective would go on to serve in the Union Intelligence Service during the Civil War, and when he found out about the successful and famous assassination of Lincoln in 1865, he's quoted as lamenting, if only I had been there to protect him as I had done before. In this opening story, there was a desire to assassinate a leader, and even though the plan was sworn to utmost secrecy, it was still thwarted by a painstakingly detailed response. In our passage this morning, everyone is looking around at Jesus and the religious leaders he's having a tension-filled conversation with and wondering, wait a second, I thought this guy was the guy they were conspiring to kill. They have him here, right in front of them, unarmed, and are doing nothing about it. What's going on? In other words, and opposite to our opening story, everyone knew about the desire to kill Jesus, but yet the ones with the greatest desire are not doing anything about it at the moment here. Over the past couple of weeks, we've been talking about the danger that Jesus knew awaited him in Jerusalem and how a growing number of religious, religious leaders were out to kill him, especially if they knew he was going to the Feast of Tabernacles. Jesus would not break the Jewish law, however, and even though he still fulfilled the offerings and sacrifices for that observance in secret, he ended up teaching in the temple. There, Jesus once again affirmed his own deity, as well as the fact that anything he taught, he got directly from God the Father. The same one the religious leaders out to kill Jesus claimed to worship. When Jesus called him out on that, the crowd became angry and accused Jesus of being demon-possessed, in essence calling what was good evil. To their accusations, Jesus simply replied that instead of judging them, they should judge themselves and therefore repent. This is what he referred to as the righteous judgment that we talked about last week. We talked last week about how there are other times where believers in Jesus must practice righteous judgment, especially within what is claimed to be the church or Christianity. Believers must stand up for the accurate word, uh, the accurate truth of the inerrant and infallible word of God especially when it has woke or personal views read into it, or it's being rejected based on humanistic and purely cultural views, or it's being ripped out of context and twisted around to say something it was never intended to say. And sin must be dealt with in a loving fashion. 
Jesus told the crowd and religious leaders that instead of judging him, making accusations and calling good evil, they should turn the same amount of scrutiny inward and use that to cause them to repent and turn to him in faith. And that's what brings us to our passage this morning. So if you brought your Bible with you, uh, please turn to John chapter 7. If you didn't, that's okay. There should be one located in the pew in front of you. Please also turn to John chapter 7. We're going to be picking up in verse 25, or you, you can look this up on your favorite Bible app on your smartphone. But John chapter 7, verse 25, uh, we pick up and we read this. So some of the people of Jerusalem were saying, is this not the man whom they are seeking to kill? Look, he is speaking publicly, and they are saying nothing to him. The rulers do not really know that this is the Christ, do they? As pointed out by one biblical scholar, the people know, everybody knows about this. Everybody knows there's a plot to kill Jesus, knows it involves the religious leaders, and yet here is the target of that murder plot, speaking boldly in the temple and even at the leaders, and not one of them is saying or doing anything in response. The crowd is plainly confused. They're looking around at everything, and they're plainly confused at the lack of leadership their so-called religious leaders had or were acting on. And so the crowd's response to the lack of action is, what are the authorities thinking? Are they not really sure yet about Jesus? Did they change their minds? One biblical scholar notes that in the crowd's minds, they're thinking, okay, there are two options here. If this man is a deceiver, then he should be arrested. If he is really the Messiah, we should accept him as such. But nothing's happening here. The authorities aren't doing anything, and they're refusing to make a public decision. Publicly, they just keep riding the fence. And at the same time, that speaks volumes too. There are a few comparisons of knowing Jesus that are made in this morning's passage. The first one is found in the crowd's question about the lack of leadership being shown by their religious authorities. They don't know that this guy is the Messiah, do they? And like referenced before, this is a question of accusation leveled at the authorities for their lack of decisiveness. The religious leaders didn't want to publicly make any decisions that would come back at them at some other point. And so they remained silent. This is the first understanding of knowing Jesus we come across this morning. For all intents and purposes, what the religious leaders were publicly displaying was an act of agnosticism. They weren't sure what to make of Jesus or what they should do about him, and so they refused to make a decision either way. That's how a lot of people today are when it comes to Jesus. They've heard bits and pieces about him throughout their lifetimes, but they don't know if they actually want to or even need to put their faith in him for some kind of salvation from their sin. Supreme Court Justice Samuel Alito wrote a piece recently in which he made the exact same observation that I brought up a couple of weeks ago, that biblical Christianity and its views, especially on social and cultural topics, are the number one enemy right now. In that same piece, he also lamented an experience he had where he overheard a boy ask his mother, who is Jesus Christ? He had no idea. He just heard the name. He had no idea who that was, let alone anything about him. 
The editor of a major news publication wrote a scathing rebuttal to Justice Alito's piece, saying that he was raising his kids to be thoroughly secular, and that if only more kids were raised in the same way, the country would be better off. Because, you know, for the decades in which that has been happening recently, the country just keeps getting better and better, right? So that's working out. This is my point. Most people, if you ask them what they think of Jesus, will shut that conversation down right away. Why? Because they don't want to think about it. And they don't want to think about it so much that they don't want to find out more. Why? It's uncomfortable. Why is it uncomfortable? Because a lot of people have heard just enough about Jesus to know that they would then have to come face to face with, uh, about what they're going to have to do with their sin. A lot of people who describe themselves as agnostics either don't want to face that and have to make a decision about it, so they just try not to think about it. Or they care so little about it that they're too lazy to find out about, uh, enough about Jesus to make a decision either way about Jesus. If you're sitting here today or watching or listening online later, you have to make a decision about Jesus. You can't keep riding the fence, always refusing to make a decision about him until your dying breath and just hope your general goodness is enough to cross the threshold of heaven. Here's why. What most people base the premise of their eternal destination on is that we're all generally good people destined for heaven. And if you really mess up, then you are in hell. And as long as you believe whatever you believe sincerely, we'll all go to the same good place, like a certain sitcom on NBC with the same title. But that's not what God's word says at all. And that's not the truth at all. We looked at this passage last week, but time and time again, what do we read throughout the Bible? Everything we read about in the Bible are things in line with this. As it is written, there is no righteous person. Not even one. There is no one who understands and there is no one who seeks out God. They have all turned aside. Together they have all become corrupt. There is no one who does good. There is not even one. So if you think you're generally a good enough person to get into heaven, that just shattered all of that. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So in reality, the complete opposite of what most people believe is really what's true. Every single person who has ever lived because of their sin and rebellion against God's standards, no matter what we think of ourselves, is destined for God's judgment, condemnation, and banishment to eternal torture in a location known as the lake of fire. The only place we automatically earn is not heaven. The only place we automatically earn is hell. It's only by recognizing the gravity of that and accepting that the only way to escape that is to be saved from it by God's grace. We can only be saved from that eternity by accepting that Jesus paid for our sin death penalty as a substitute on our behalf, thereby repenting of that sin and making him king over the rest of our lives. That's it. That right there, that's it. There is no other way to be saved from that other than making a decision about it. 
If you continue to ride the fence up until your last breath and never make a decision about it, you will simply go where you had been destined to go because of your sin, along with everyone else who mocked and rejected Jesus their whole lives. My question to you is this. Is it worth it? Is it worth it to never make a decision until your dying breath? Is it worth it to be a cool agnostic, never wanting to make a decision on this because you either don't want to think about it or you don't care enough or you don't want to offend anyone else and their beliefs? That's the first view of knowing, or rather the lack thereof, Jesus. The next one is similar but more concrete. These people have made a decision. It's just a humanistic decision about Jesus. Verse 27 The crowd says, however, we know where this man is from, but whenever the Christ may come, no one knows where he is from. See, the crowd looks at the lack of knowing about Jesus, or at least making a public decision about it from their religious leaders and take matters into their own hands. They say, well, if they're not going to do anything about it or say anything about it, then we will. They say they may not be willing to say or do anything in response to this guy, but we know who he is, or rather, who he's not. Here's the problem. This view of the Messiah is not based on anything in the Jewish scriptures. It's based on hearsay, more specifically on Jewish tradition that the rabbis had been teaching the people for years. This tradition, as pointed out by one biblical scholar, taught that the Messiah would be hidden for a time before his, revelation, before his revelation. Even though it's not canonical, by and large, Jesus was unknown in the world as the Messiah, save for people in Judea and Galilee, until his death and resurrection, until he really was revealed to be the Messiah. Then the message about him burned like wildfire across the ancient Greco-Roman world, across all the roads and lands the Roman Empire thought they had conquered for their own benefit only. The crowd's view on Jesus was based mostly on wrong hearsay and assumptions. They heard their rabbis teach on a tradition that wasn't biblically based. In fact, if anyone had dug into it, they would have discovered the same exact truth that the scribes 30 years before this knew. When the Magi came to Jerusalem looking for one born king of the Jews, it's Herod, as noted by one biblical scholar, who connects their inquiry to the Messiah and asks the scribes where the Messiah was to be born. The scribes immediately quote Micah 5.2 and tell Herod what should have always been public knowledge. They said to him, in Bethlehem, that's where he's supposed to come from. Well, that's where he was supposed to be born, in Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, from, for from you, you will come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. What's interesting to see here is that the scribes never proactively investigated this for themselves. As pointed out by one biblical scholar, Matthew is saying that the line between indifference and the future rejection by these scribes' successors was not that much different. As such, in just one example, the scribes' indifference fueled this wrong theological view that no one was to have any clue of the origin of the Messiah, which carried through to this conversation with Jesus here and even into the years beyond it. 
Not only did the crowd have this wrong theological view when it came to who the Messiah would be, but then they made a human-based assumption on him. Notice what the people say at the beginning of verse 27. We know where this man is from. Just like everyone else, they assumed Jesus was always from Nazareth. That is, that he was both raised and born in Nazareth, just because his parents were both from there and raised him there, and that was the story of everyone else's background. We know from God's word that Jesus' earthly parents both lived in Nazareth, but then went to Bethlehem, where Jesus was born, escaped Herod's evil infanticide edict by living in Egypt for a period of time, and then returned to Nazareth. But that didn't fit the norm or the assumptive narrative, though, so the people made a wrong assumption on an already wrong theological viewpoint. That's what brings us to our second view of knowing Jesus. There are a lot of people walking around this world who, in contrast to agnostics or others who refuse to make a decision about Jesus, have made a decision about Jesus, the problem is that they've made inaccurate and therefore wrong decisions on Jesus based on humanistic and wrong viewpoints, hearsay, and assumptions. They believe that Jesus was just a good teacher. They believe that Jesus got himself, himself killed by the Romans because he got caught up in the same messianic fervor about himself that everyone else had. They believe he never existed. They believe that he did exist, but he was a mere human, a prophet, and died by common execution. The basic rebuttal to all of these views based on humanistic viewpoints and hearsay is this, and you can look this up. If you applied the same rigorous historical investigation and scientific analysis to both canonical testaments of the Bible as you did every other historical document, to know what happened in history, you'd find more overwhelming evidence for the Bible's historicity and accuracy than any other document in history. You'd find that all of its prophecies that pertain to world history up to this point took place exactly the way they were prophesied. You'd find that all the time and location references lined up with what else we know about world history. You'd have to do some digging and research, but you'd find in every seeming inconsistency or wrong detail, there is a reasonable and logical solution to clear it all up. Just look at the evidence for creation versus the evidence for naturalistic evolution. Every so-called problem that evolutionists throw at creationists can be cleared up by the geological evidence of the universal flood. The same flood that God saved Noah and his family from unleashed violent geysers out of the depths of the earth, split up the continents into what they are today, caused the vapor greenhouse dome that Genesis describes as the firmament to come crashing down upon the earth and laid down layer after layer after layer of sediment in the geological record very quickly instead of millions of years and caused complete climate up upheaval during the flood and 
and its aftermath, resulting in an ice age and subsequent glacial recession. And it all explains the evidence of the history of the world much more coherently than the illogical and purposely blind explanations of evolution. So my question is, how and why would the Bible be right about everything else it says and be wrong that the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, God himself, performed miracle after miracle, including the greatest miracle of rising from the dead? The simple answer is that it's not, and that it's all true. People also make the humanistic assumptions that they can take bits and pieces of hearsay mixed in with their own 21st century observations of the world and its current cultural views and believe that Jesus is a certain way and that he would respond the same way to current societal and cultural topics as modern woke people would and that he just accepts everyone without expecting them to be changed to align more with God's standards. Those assumptions are based on the exact same wrong thinking as those who deny Jesus' deity. What we all have to do is get rid of any preconceived notions of who we think Jesus is and who we think he should be, what we think about anything, and how he would respond. Instead, like with everything else, we have to start with the Bible as the inerrant an infallible word of God, which it has proven itself to be time and time again, and seek to have as accurate of an understanding of who Jesus is and why he said the things he said and didn't say other things from what's written about him in light of the entire Bible. Not just rip different things out of context. Jesus gets at this in his response, which is our third view of knowing Jesus this morning. Verses 28 through 29. Then Jesus cried out in the temple, teaching and saying, you, you both know me and know where I am from. And I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. I know him because I am from him, and he sent me. As noted by one biblical scholar at the beginning of verse 28, Jesus sort of sarcastically responds to the crowd's insistence they're right by saying, oh, you say you both know me and know where I come from, eh? In reality, you have no clue who I am or where I come from. Simply put, according to Jesus here, where he truly came from is the exact same answer to who he is. He explains that neither he nor his ministry came from any human ambition on his part. All of it, it all came from God the Father. And in a twist of irony, whom the crowd and leaders who claim to know everything about Jesus in connection to, they didn't actually know. As Jesus has said previously, if they truly did know, God the Father, they would know that Jesus came from him. The religious leaders claimed to know God the Father and what his plan was. In reality, the one they were seeking to kill for blasphemy was the only one who actually knew God the Father and could accurately represent him to humanity. And that's where our understanding, knowledge, and personal relationship with Jesus must start too. Here's what the crowd 
religious leaders, and a lot of people today get devastatingly wrong. They believe that Jesus was a man, a prophet perhaps, but separate from God the Father, just, just a man. But what does Jesus declare here in the temple that day? He, fir he first starts off with God the Father as the foundation of truth in verse 28. That's where any belief must start. God is truth, and God is the only source of truth. As such, his word is the only source of truth. Any other thoughts, viewpoints, or writings must be based on that truth of God. Even Jesus' fiercest critics in his day would have agreed with that. But what does that have to do with Jesus? Jesus says outright in verse 29 that he is from God the Father. This doesn't just mean what Jesus has already said, that he was merely sent from God. In that case, any of the other legitimate prophets were the exact same. Well, the word used here in the Greek means to be very close beside. Be very close beside. It can be a locational term, as in Matthew describing Jesus as walking by the Sea of Galilee. It's the exact same word. And he meant very close alongside the Sea of Galilee. What does that mean for our passage this morning? That Jesus is declaring his origin as being very close alongside of God the Father in a locational way. And it's from this, this relationship that the Father then sent him to earth. This, in undoubtedly yet another description of the Trinity, which the Apostle John already explained in a bit more detail at the very beginning of his gospel, is, is written here. Jesus' origin was not human, nor tied to an earthly location, and could not be assumed as the crowd had assumed. Jesus' true origin was existing for all of eternity and very close alongside of God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. That's what John begins his gospel with, and that's what our faith must begin with. Jesus, as the Son of God, as a term of submission of position, not as a term of being, essence, or origin, has always existed as a member of the Trinity right alongside of God the Father. As such, he has always had an unbroken, perfect relationship of communication and love with the Father. And as such, he is the perfect representative of the Father, accurately and truthfully revealing the truths that the Father wants revealed. The Son of God then added humanity to his deity by taking on human flesh and therefore died a human death and then physically rose back again from the dead. In his post-resurrection body, he ascended back to heaven where he is preparing uh, our heavenly home for us and interceding to the Father on behalf of those who have and will put their faith in him for their salvation. And one day, the Son of God will partially return, take those who put their faith in him to be with him for all of eternity, and then about seven years after that, fully return to annihilate the armies of the world and establish his perfect earthly kingdom of peace and justice. In order to have any of this, we need to truly know Jesus. 
not in a wrong and humanistic way, but in the way he has provided for us to know him. We can all have a vibrant, powerful, and growing relationship with the Son of God himself by repenting of our sin and committing our lives to him as the Savior from that sin and the King over the rest of our lives. That's just the beginning, though. Then we get to spend the rest of our lives getting to know Jesus, getting to know him in prayer and being grown and led by his Holy Spirit and in digging into his word to have as accurate and truthful knowledge of him as possible. The Holy Spirit then enlightens us to these truths and grows our relationship with Jesus throughout the rest of our lifetimes. Let us not base our knowledge of Jesus on hearsay, on bits and pieces we put together ourselves with our own modern view of the world or never actually make a decision about Jesus. But rather, let us surrender ourselves to Jesus' saving power and repentance and then reap the spiritual, mental, psychological, and physical benefits of the treasure that is a growing relationship with Jesus, getting to know him better and better each day in prayer, and digging into his word. Nothing more needs to be added or reimagined or reinterpreted about a growing faith and knowledge of Jesus. That's human pride. All we need to do to have a vibrant relationship with God is to surrender to him and to humbly seek him. The same apostle who wrote this gospel will write a letter around the same time as this gospel, and in it, he'll write these words of excitement and hope for those who place their trust for their eternity in the hands of Jesus. This is what he says. See how very much our Father loves us. He calls us his children, and that is what we are. But the people who belong to this world don't recognize that we are God's children because they don't know him. Dear friends, we are already God's children, but he has not yet shown us what we will be like when Christ appears, when Jesus comes back for us. But we do know that we will be like him, for we will see him as he really is. And all who have this eager expectation will keep themselves pure, just as he is pure. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these words recorded by the Apostle John in this conversation that Jesus is continuing to have in the temple, uh, both with the crowd and with the religious leaders. And we're going to find out next week what the result of that is. Lord, we thank you that your word speaks truth into our lives. It is our source of truth. It is our only source of truth. You are the embodiment of the word, and you say, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life, and nobody can have a relationship with God the Father except through me, except through Jesus. Lord, I pray that if there's anybody here or, or watching or listening online later that has never made that decision, has never come to that point in their lives, I pray that they would answer that call, that they would answer that churning of the Holy Spirit with them in, within them right now to do that, to come before you in prayer, to repent of their sin, and to take you as Savior and King. And for all of us who have made that decision already, it might have been decades ago, I pray that we would continue to seek you 
continue to seek you for all your worth, your treasure, the treasure that is a vibrant and powerful and growing relationship with you. We look forward with great excitement and anticipation the day that you return for us. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand with me as we close out our time this morning.